0: Our friends who are headed to Toddler Nursery and Children's Church can be dismissed at this time. Those of you who are remaining in the sanctuary, if you would please turn to Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus chapter 24. As you're turning there, just a statement. I'm a huge fan of Revelation song that we just sang. And uh, I've always liked the way that we've done it here at Sylvania. Um, and I really do like the add-on of the bass solo. Like, I know, right? Like, when when do you say how am I going to church when I have a bass solo? Like, it just—I I don't know. I was like, are we really having a bass solo right now? That's awesome. That's great. That's fantastic. We have incredibly gifted and talented musicians at our church, and it's a privilege to be able to have them lead us in singing worship each week, and it's just great. So, Leviticus chapter twenty-four. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they bring to you clear oil from beaten olives for the light, to make a lamp burn continually. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. He shall keep the lamps in order on the pure gold lampstand before the lord continually then you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it 2 tenths of an epha shall be in each cake and you shall set it in two rows 6 to a row on the pure gold table before the lord and you shall put pure frankincense on each row that it may be a memorial portion for the bread even an offering by fire to the lord every sabbath day he shall set it in order before the lord continually it is an everlasting covenant for the sons of israel It shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place. For it is the most holy to him for the Lord's offering by fire his portion forever. Now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the sons of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and the man of Israel struggled with each other in the camp. And the son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed, so they brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was and the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody so that the command of the Lord might be made clear to them. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the one who has cursed outside of the camp. Let all who heard uh, him lay their hands on his head, and then let all the congregation stone him. And you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall uh, certainly stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. If a man takes the life of, a, of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. The one who takes the life of an animal shall make it good life for life. If a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Thus the one who kills an animal shall make it good but the one who kills a man shall be put to death. There shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well for the native, for I am the Lord your God. And then Moses spoke to the sons of Israel, and they brought the one who had cursed outside of the camp and stoned him with stones. Thus the sons of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for its complexity. Father, thank you for the way that it... um, Demonstrates to us the sort of holy God that you are. Father, let us see the glory and light of Christ in our text today. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so this this morning it's an unusual text. And I want to start with that. I want to start with the oddness of this chapter. Um, the, the first thing that I want to point out about why this chapter is so odd, why this chapter is so strange is its placement in the book of Leviticus. Now, if you're reading ahead, you're going to see I'm going to explain what I was going to do and what I'm actually doing today because this is not the sermon. Uh, For those of you who don't know, not been around for a while or haven't had the conversation, so when I get ready to do a series, usually one of the other elders preaches in the in-between, so I have kind of an off week to like pre-prep the whole series. And what I do is I go through whatever book it is that I'm going to be preaching through. And I lay out, these are the sermons. Like I already map them all. Like I don't do all the sermon work. But I just map out a big outline to keep myself from being in a book for like 87 years. You know, it's like, okay, at some point we have to stop talking. We have to be done. So these are the sermons. And so way back when, Leviticus 24, was going to be two sermons. Okay. It was going to be verses. And you can see the break. It was going to be verses 1 through 9, no, yes, 9, and then verses 10 through 23, because those two things don't really seem like they go with each other. So I was just going to do two sermons and call it a day. problem is, is that Leviticus 24 is really weird. Like, take a look back just for a second at Leviticus chapters 22 and 23. So you have the rules, uh, go all the way back to 21, actually. So in 21, you have the regulations for the priests and how they're supposed to be in their own personal life and how they're supposed to engage the work of the tabernacle. Then you get into 22 and it continues talking about how the priest is to order his life since he is the one doing the work in the tabernacle. The back half of 22 talks about the flawless nature of the animals for sacrifices in the tabernacle. And then chapter 23 talks about the religious feast days that are directly connected with the tabernacle. Because most of those religious feast days, there were offerings being made in the tabernacle to celebrate those feasts, feast days. And then it discussed again in great detail the Day of Atonement. And then if we were to fast forward to next week, chapter 25 talks about the sabbatic year and the year of Jubilee and the law of redemption and how that works and how that interplays. And then right in the middle of all of that, there's some stuff about some lamp oil and some bread and a guy who blasphemed God and the great injunction, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, the concept of divine judgment and divine justice. Completely disconnected. From everything else that's going on in Leviticus. In fact, most Old Testament scholars are baffled by the location of this chapter in the book of Leviticus. Because if you're just reading through Leviticus, if you were to take chapter 24 out, it just flows real nice to go from 23 to 25. Like actually flows better if you were to do that. There's a whole lot of other places in Leviticus that this or at least parts of this chapter would have made more sense. And it's just kind of oddly placed, just weird. But then it's not only oddly placed in the whole book, the chapter itself is weird. Because it starts out talking about the the oil for the lamps how the lamps are supposed to be burning all the time, and the bread that's supposed to be brought into the table on the Sabbath day and how that's supposed to be there all week and then another portion of bread is supposed to replace it and that the priest, this is the bread that the priests are allowed to eat from the table once the Sabbath runs and he's supposed to bring new bread each week and that sort of thing. And it's like, okay, so we're talking about like what the tabernacle environment supposed to look like And then they break into a very rare narrative story in Leviticus about some guy and another guy who got in a fight. And in the middle of the fight, the guy swears and takes God's name in vain. And they take him into custody and they decide they need to kill the guy. And the community stones him to death. And Moses gives the law, hey, this is what it's like when, you know, if you kill a human or if you kill an animal, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, fracture for a fracture. We've all heard that verse and we've heard it in the New Testament. And it's like that has absolutely nothing to do with anything relate it to the life of the tabernacle or the bread or the lamp oil. It's just this random story just stuck right here in the middle of all these regulations about the tabernacle and feast days. And so I'm, I'm just going to tell you, uh, I'm not by training an Old Testament scholar. And so I, I, I did a lot of dig, deep digging on this because I needed help. And all the guys who could help me said, I oh. like And so... I get really stressed out when the guys who are supposed to know basically spend 18 pages saying, I don't really know what's going on here. Um, Because that's how scholars do it. You know, normal people, if they don't know, they say, I I don't know. And scholars spend 18 pages and 73 paragraphs and a whole bunch of really big words and three languages. And at the end of it, you go, oh, he said he didn't know. And so so I spend a lot of time reading a bunch of guys who are supposed to know saying, I don't know. Um, And so... I'm not going to be a lot of help to you this morning as to why this chapter is so weird. Because the guys who are supposed to know don't know. Why is this here and why is this located this way? And why does it seem so out of place? And why does internally it seem so out of place? And so what I was going to do is I was going to preach the first nine verses by themselves. And we were going to talk about the bread and the lamp. And I was going to preach the last verses by themselves. And we were going to talk about divine judgment and justice. And I was just going to ignore it. But then the Lord convicted me that, you know, we don't ignore stuff when we're dealing with things in the Bible. So there is a connection. And we're going to try to find it. We're going to try to do what the scholars have not been able to do this morning in our worship. No, I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. Um, But there is a connection. And I want us to see at least the general connection, the thing that everybody can agree on as to why this is here. So first, this first nine verses... There's a connection to the work of the tabernacle. These are the lamps that are supposed to be burning continually. This is the bread that's supposed to be offered every Sabbath day, 12 pieces, six rows by two. This is the, this beautiful thing. Now, it's in the context, like the feast days were, of the notion of the Sabbath. Okay? So we have this work of the tabernacle and the place where the sacrifices. For those feast days in the preceding chapters would be made. Connected with the notion of Sabbath bread. When all of those feast days celebrate some version of the Sabbath with them. And all of that is connected to the notion of divine judgment. Because in case you've just missed it the whole time that we've been in Leviticus. The work of the tabernacle is predominantly a work expressing talking about or dealing with divine judgment. That's why they're making most of the offerings. Some of them are Thanksgiving offerings, yes. Some of them are free will offerings, yes. But most of them are guilt offerings, sin offerings, burnt offerings. There's some notion of there's divine judgment to be had. I don't want that divine judgment to fall on me. I need some sort of substitute In the middle of this. And I think the connection here. That we have in this weird chapter. That's weirdly placed. Is the tabernacle is the designated place. Where God's divine judgment is met with mercy. But God's divine judgment never ceases. Make sure the lamps never go out. Make sure that you can always see the sacrificial place. Because you will always need access to the sacrificial place. Because God's divine judgment is perpetual and eternal. And every time you bring one of these animals, and then you sin again, you need to bring another animal. And I think that there's this connection. But this really wild thing that's happening with the presence of the bread is the presence of the bread, this grain offering is a celebration of God's provision and God's mercy. So just as God's divine judgment is ever present and can be seen at the sacrificial altar through these lamps that never go out, so too can God's provision and mercy be seen by the bread that is spread in front of that altar that is always there, declaring, yes, my judgment is always against you, but my mercy is also always available to you as my people. And I think that this is a really great picture that God is connecting across these chapters that can be easily missed if we don't look at it closely. And so why then the narrative story in the middle? It's a demonstration, I think, of how God's justice works in this particular economy. You have a man who struggles with another man. Now, it never says that he killed the man. But there was a conflict. There was a fight. Now, I've seen fights where when the fight's over, there wasn't really a fight. You know, it's like that was, that was really... Or, or the thing the guys used to do at one of the schools I went to, they'd lock shoulders and they'd kind of walk around with their heads touching each other. Man, 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 man. And then nobody ever did anything. And it's like that. Total waste of my time. But then but but then I have seen and been in a few fights where like oh it was a fight. And there were injuries. There was wounding. There was pain. Fractures and whatnot. Like all the stuff that's listed in here. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, fracture for a fracture, life for life. And so we don't know the full extent of this conflict, but in this conflict, in this fight that took place. Someone was at fault. It seems from the description that the one who blasphemed was the one who was at fault. That seems to be the indication. And so this person not only was at fault for creating conflict that led to some version of an injury, we don't know what, but simultaneously violated the law of God by blaspheming God's name. Which, by the way, all comes under the umbrella of of God's divine judgment. So all of this stuff gets connected. There is a real running connection to this oddly placed chapter in the middle of all this other stuff that's going on in the book of Leviticus. Now, we could just leave it there. We could be done. We, we, could, we could touch in on the notion of capital punishment and life for life and a man who kills a human, his life must be taken. We, we could touch on all kinds of sociological and cultural issues. But I think that we would be missing a larger point, a greater point that the New Testament lays out for us. And the fact that this chapter, chapter 24, as odd and as strange as it is in its placement and its internal context, is actually a fantastic and wonderful picture of Jesus Christ and His church. And so I think that's where I want us to spend the rest of our time together this morning, is looking at this reality. Now, we're going to do a little Bible drill action this morning. So, kids help your parents out because they're not ready for this. So, I want everybody to flip over to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. So, in this text of Leviticus chapter 24, there's a mandate given to Aaron and to the priest to make sure that the lamps that are before the place of sacrifice never go out that there's always light there in fact it uses the language of this is an everlasting covenant this is something that needs to happen in every perpetual generation so j- just, just for kicks this morning are the because la- when the tabernacle ceased and the temple began the same lights were in the temple are those lights lit right now no they haven't been lit for almost 2000 years the temple was destroyed in 70 ad but how can this be an everlasting covenant and perpetual statute in all of your generations that the light before the place of sacrifice will always be lit how can this be Revelation chapter 21, verse 23. In fact, I I wasn't going to do this, but I want want to, let's back up. Let's back up a couple of verses from verse 23 to to verse 1. Okay, that's a couple of verses. (laughs) Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. This is Leviticus, by the way. Remember, Leviticus is predominantly about the regulations of the tabernacle which preceded the temple. And the tabernacle is a temporary dwelling reality. It's not permanent. It does not have a foundation. It's a tent that can be moved around from place to place. As God leads the people, the people carry the worship of God with them wherever they go. So there's there's intentionality here not using temple language, using tabernacle language in the eschatological reality of the book of Revelation. Now, here's what it says. The tabernacle of God is among men and He... Will dwell among them. He will. Not it will. He will. The tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God among mankind, is found in a person, and that person's name is Jesus Christ. It's not a location, it's not a building. It's not something that you knit together. It's not something that you stand up. It's not a place that you go to. It is an individual and His name is Jesus Christ. So let's keep looking. He will dwell among them and they shall be His people and God Himself will be among Him. That's the incarnation. That's that's what that is. What what did we call Christ? We sing about it at, at Christmas time. Emmanuel, God with us. And what's he going to do? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Why? Because the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Very new covenant, old covenant language there. And he said, write these words because they are faithful as true. And then he said to me, it is done. That sounds very familiar as well. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. And he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the immoral persons and the sorcerers and the idolaters and all liars, their part will be with the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And then one of the angels who had one of the seven bowls full of the last plagues spoke with me, said, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And I want to pause because I'm not going to read all this till we get to verse 23, but I want to pause. He said, come here, I'm going to show you the bride. And then he gives this description of the new Jerusalem, not a description of a city, description of the people of God. So when you read through that, you're not looking for a newly built Jerusalem with a newly built temple and a newly built tabernacle. The whole chapter just said that's not it. Jesus is the tabernacle. The new Jerusalem is the people of God. Let me show them to you. What that looks like. And then he gives this crazy, wild description of the city because John's trying to use words that are not fitting in human language to describe the glory of God's people when we receive full conformity to the image of Christ and the future resurrection. Words cannot explain. Words can't describe the glory of Christ as our head. Words cannot describe the glory of us as His body, His perpetual people, His eternal bride. It can't, there's Human words can't find it. He's doing the best he can on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But words come short. And so he gives this magnificent description of this great city. And then verse 22. I saw no temple in it. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Because friends, the temple is a demonstration regularly of the oppression of human sinfulness. The Scripture makes this very clear. The laws and the rituals, and the sacrifices, and the regulations, all 613 of them that are listed in the Old Testament, plus the thousands upon thousands more that were added throughout the tradition of the millennia until the New Covenant, they all point to one thing and one thing only. Mankind is broken in sin and in desperate need of a Savior. And every time they would go into that tabernacle, and then when it was replaced with the temple, and every time they would go in that temple, it screamed out, I am a wretched sinner. I make a sacrifice. I leave. I sin again. I make a sacrifice. I leave. I sin again. I make a sacrifice. Thank God there's one day out of the year where we all make one big sacrifice. And then the next day, we start it all over again. The temple is a reminder of man's oppressive sinfulness and need for a Savior. And it says here in that great day when the tabernacle dwells among us and we are made in His image, there is no temple. Praise God. There's no temple in it. Why? Because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And we get to the verse that connects us to Leviticus chapter 24. And the city... Remember, the city's the people. People of God. The people of God have no need for the sun or the moon to shine upon them. Why? For the glory of God has illumined them, and the lamp of those people is the Lamb. Jesus is the lamp that never goes out. And the beautiful thing is, is he's not shining a light on a sacrificial table in a tabernacle or a temple. He's shining a light of his glory on his people saying, there's no need for you to make sacrifice for your sin ever again, because I have made sacrifice for your sin and I have made you to be like me. Flip over a page to Revelation 22 verse 5. Back up a few verses here. Verse 1. And then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb. In the middle of its street. Remember, the city's the people. It's flowing in the middle of their street, inside of you. The heart of stone has been removed, replaced with a heart of flesh. I will cause to have well what did Jesus say? I will cause if anyone's thirsty, I'm come to me a drink, and I will have cause to well up inside of him water of life. This is just agreeing with what Jesus said in his gospel ministry in his first incarnation. In the middle of its street, and on either side of that river. And this is where it gets wild. On either side of the river was the tree of life, one tree on two sides of the river. Kind of weird. It's a weird tree. Revelations is a weird book. Bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healings of the nations. Notice what tree is not there. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Only the tree of life. The only choice that you have in this great redemption day, this great resurrection of Christ, this final reckoning, is life. Why? Because life's been given to you. Beautiful. And there will no longer be any curse. And the Lamb of God and the, and the, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face. Their name will be on their forehead. And they, there will no longer be any night. And they will not have the need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. Why? Because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ is the great lamp, the great light of the world, the great light that shines on us, the great light that shines in us, and it never goes out. Praise God, there is not a temple for a lamp to be burning in because the lamp is Jesus Christ Himself. By extension, then, flip back if you will, Bible drill, Luke chapter 12. By extension, then. We are also lamps because we've been made like our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been conformed into his image. Luke chapter 12. Beginning of verse 35, it says, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like the men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Did you hear that? You're a servant. You're a slave. You're a citizen of the kingdom. Be waiting for your master. He's coming soon. Be on the ready, have your lamp lit. And when the Master comes and sees that you are on the ready, he'll let you sit down at the table. And instead of you waiting on him in his love and his grace and his mercy, he will wait on you. It's insane, it's madness. Flip over, if you will, back a few pages to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Beginning in verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand and it gives light to all in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Fast forward, one chapter, chapter 6. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? For no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and serve the other. You cannot serve God and wealth or God and mammon. Friends, we are called to be the light of Christ. We are called to shine the glory of Christ in the world continuously, without ceasing, always on the ready. And we could have spent another few hours in this motif of lamps and lights throughout the New Testament. It's a picture that's found everywhere there. But Christ is not only the lamp that we see in Leviticus chapter 24, burning forever, even in the absence of a tabernacle or a temple, but Christ is also our Sabbath bread, which was meant for the priest, but now has been made available to all who love and fear him. Flip way back. It's 1 Samuel. <clears throat> 1 Samuel chapter 21. Great story. 1 Samuel chapter 21, beginning of verse 1. I'll give you a second to get there. To pull a Shane McGuire, it's on page 279. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me. With a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you, and with which I have commissioned you, and I have directed the young men to a certain place. Now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is the consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. And David said, answered the priest and said, Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out. The vessels of the young men were holy. Though it's not ordinary, Though it was an ordinary journey, how much more today will their vessels be holy? And so the priest gave him the consecrated bread. For there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. That's the bread from Leviticus chapter 24. Priests were supposed to eat that at the end of the week and then switch it out with new bread that was forever to be in the presence of the people. And King David, the great type of Christ, was allowed to consume that bread and give it to his companions who were with him. I want you to flip back forward to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And I want us to go to... Verse 1, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said, look, your disciples do what is not lawful on the Sabbath. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions This is a reference to the first Samuel chapter we just read, which is a reference back to the bread of, of the presence from Leviticus 24. How he entered the house of God, how they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath, but yet are innocent? But I say to you that something greater, hear this, something greater than the temple is here. Amen. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Friends, hear me this morning. That bread that's supposed to be perpetually and everlastingly as a covenant, sitting out in front of the sacrificial table of the tabernacle and then later the temple, that bread, just like with the lamp, is that bread there? It's the easy one. I mean, come on, let's take the easy A. Is that bread there? No. But there is a bread. That sits before the presence of God's sacrificial place. And he invites us to come and eat it. But I'm not a priest. Come and eat it. But I'm unclean. Come and eat it. I'm not worthy. Come and eat it. I have no sacrifice to bring. I have no altar to make it on. Praise God. Praise God. When we come to Christ, we don't bring a sacrifice. When we come to Christ, we don't bring. The grain and the incense and the drink offering and the wave offering and the animal to slaughter. We do not bring these things. Christ Himself is the priest. Christ Himself is the altar. Christ Himself is the sacrifice. Christ Himself is the bread. Christ Himself is the lamp and He shines His light in the darkness of our heart and He lets us feast on Him as bread from heaven and drink His blood as a communion cup and He says, I will remember your sins no more which was never the economy of the tabernacle or the temple and so what do we do then with the story in 24 of the man caught in blasphemy that gives us that great legal code of an eye for an eye Leviticus 24, 17-23 speaks to us of God's great divine judgment. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, injury for injury, fracture for fracture. As it is done to the other, so it shall be done to you. The man who takes human life, his life shall be taken. The man who takes animal life, it shall be paid back in full. And then it says that they brought that man out. They laid their hands on his head. They drug him out into the middle of the community. And they all stoned him to death. Where... Do we see Jesus in this? Flip, if you will, back to Matthew, just a couple of pages. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Beginning in verse 38, this is what Jesus says about Leviticus chapter 24. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye. And a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But if but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if any wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat. Also, Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away him who wants to borrow from you. For you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Again, a throwback to Leviticus. Leviticus 19, in this case. We dealt with that a few weeks ago. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven because He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more do you have than any of the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, and this is the mandate throughout Leviticus, multiple times, three different occasions. Therefore... You are to be perfect, or better translation, holy, as your heavenly Father is holy. Leviticus 19 and others also repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 18. What do we do with this concept? An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I'll be straight with you. A wonderful governing practice for a nation. I I won't even... I won't even like shrink back from saying that out loud from the pulpit. Equitable justice is a great practice for a nation. It just is. If you've done something severely wrong, you should be severely punished. That's just a great that's just a great practice for a nation. It just makes sense. However, I'm in this world, but I'm not of this world. I long for a city not made with hands. I long for a country far off that is not my own. I am... The Israelite people wandering in the wilderness longing to enter into the promised land. And the regulations that my king has given me are unlike any regulation that any nation has ever given its people. And he looks at me and he says, you are living in a world filled with broken sinners that have not been redeemed. Just like you were before I redeemed you. And when you live in a land of people who hate you and despise you because they hate me and they despise me. You will not exact your vengeance on them. You will love your enemy. Why? Because that's what the gospel is. I loved my enemies. The nation of Israel needed a way to regulate the violence of their people. The United States needs a way to regulate the violence of Of its people. Every nation that exists in the world needs a way to regulate the violence of its people. The God in the life of the Christian, the member of the kingdom, is not concerned about regulating the violence of his people. Instead, he's concerned about increasing the demonstration of grace and mercy and love. Of His people. Friends, no one's ever had to be be redeemed and saved and delivered from loving people too much. It's never happened. No parent has ever come to me be like, man, my kid's just too nice and they share too much and they tell the truth way too often. I don't... Uh, We gotta really scale them back. I think we need to set some goals. You know, they they need to lie once a week. They need to steal something from Susie every once in a while. I just they push their brother over for no reason. I don't I don't know why the kid's so nice. I just uh, we gotta work on this. Never that doesn't happen. We don't have to be redeemed and delivered from our desire for equitable justice and the regulation of society. All of us long to get ours. When we hear of someone being wrong, when we ourselves are wrong, we don't want to get mad. We want to get even. And what did Jesus Christ not do? He didn't do that. Like a sheep led to the slaughter, so Christ was. In in, In Paul's writings in Romans, he says, But God demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, enemies of God... Christ died for us. That's the gospel. The Gospel is me looking out at a world full of broken and fallen people and my first thought not being how can I have vengeance? My first thought not being how can I have equity? My first thought being how can I make this fair? But instead, my first thought being how can I demonstrate the gracious, merciful compassion of a God who killed His own Son that they might live? That should be my first thought. And friends, I would contend with you that what happened in Leviticus 24 in history, the son of the Egyptian woman, (coughs) was right and was true and was good. God had a law for what needed to happen to someone who did what that man did. And the people followed God's law obediently to a T. And it was right and it was good. It... I wouldn't argue with that any more than in our own culture and our own society. When we hear about someone terrorizing children and hurting them and murdering them, and that person gets sentenced severely, I would look at that and I would say, that is right and that is good. Friends, the difference between Leviticus chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 5, though, is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the new covenant. And if that same person who were to hurt all those people... Were to hear the glorious life-changing gospel message of Jesus Christ brought to them by someone shining their everlasting lamp and they're giving the everlasting bread that Christ has given to us and loving our enemy where they are and doing good to those who hate and doing good to those who persecute and doing good to those who are are wicked and evil and not turning our our eyes away in blindness toward them, but rather opening our hands of Christ to them. And that person were then to receive the bread of life and were to receive the light of Christ and they were to repent and they were to have a life, friends, guess what? That is also right and good. The story has been going around. I'm going to close with this. The story has been going around. And I like it. Usually most of the memes on the internet are train wrecks, but I like this one. When Paul the Apostle died, he entered into heavenly glory to the welcoming hands of Of those he had put to death. That is the gospel. That's what the gospel does. It causes me to look at the one. Friends, there were people in the New Testament church. In its early days. That Paul jailed or killed their husband. Or their wife. Or their grown children. Children who were orphaned. Because of the. The documents that he had to be a terrorist against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have one story of Stephen. How many others were not written down about the terrors that the Apostle Paul inflicted on the New Covenant church before his radical transformation and his acceptance into the gospel. And then those same people sent money with Paul so he could go on missionary journeys and tell people about how to be saved. You will love, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye. And friends, that's deep down in Adam, that's what we want. Eye for an eye. And I may not be preaching to anybody else in the room today but me. But just where I came from, and how I grew up, and how I was taught how life was supposed to be. Oh boy, howdy. Eye for, an eye. Eye for two eyes. Now we're just going to escalate this. I'm going to take what's mine with interest. That's how that's going to go. And that's how we are. We're bent toward that. Oh, you wronged me. If I can go from preaching to meddling, there's some of you in this room right now that sit on the side of the sanctuary you do because that person sits over there. If you can't say amen, say ouch. And I use the back door instead of the side door because they go out the other one. And if that's how we are in the household of God, how much less will we be merciful to those who are outside of the faith? And Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye. I say to you, love those who hate you. Do good to those who persecute you. Pray for those who insult you. Because if you only love those who are compassionate toward you, how are you any better than a tax collector or a pagan Gentile? I have in my spiritual imagination a vision if Jesus were present in Leviticus 24, physically present like He was in the New Covenant reality, I suspect He would have asked those who were without sin to throw the first stone. He did that later in the New Testament. And that story with a woman caught in adultery that had every right to stone her to death. Every right under the law, under Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And it says that Jesus scribbled something in the ground. And he said, let who, he who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. And it says, from the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their stones and they left. And he turned around her and he said, woman, where are your accusers? I said, there are none. He said, go and sin no more. He's the bread. He's the lamp. He is the judgment of God. Hear me. Don't think Jesus meek and lowly. He is the judgment of God. But He is also the mercy of God. And one of the most merciful things that Jesus has ever done for any of us is to completely fulfill the entire temple tabernacle economy So that now I do not have to groan under the weight of my sin, worried if I am right before God, but instead I can glory in the person of Jesus Christ, who has truly forgiven me of my sin and has forgotten my sin as far as the East is from the West. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that the Lord Jesus is our lamp, the Lord Jesus is our bread. The Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of divine judgment. The Lord Jesus is divine mercy. Father, thank You that He shines a light of glory into our lives. That He lets us feast on Him as bread from heaven. And that He extends His hand to His enemies in salvation. That He bids us to come to eat. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we